We have governments asserting that it's okay to go in and vaccinate children without their parents' consent. In this two-part episode, I sit down again with Dr. Robert Malone, who pioneered the mRNA vaccine technology that's used in many of the COVID vaccines today. We discuss his career and look further into the intriguing psychological phenomenon known as mass formation. The mass is formed around the idea that the vaccines are magically going to be able to relieve them of this problem. We also dig into how vaccines are faring against Omicron, how the term herd immunity has been weaponized, and the dangers of mandating vaccines for children. With my background and experience, if I'm not allowed to speak about my concerns, whether they're right or wrong, who is? This is American Thought Leaders, and I'm Yanya Kellek. Before we start, I wanted to take a moment to tell you about our sponsor, American Hartford Gold. As you may have heard, American Thought Leaders was demonetized by YouTube, and after many months, their rather opaque appeals process has really led nowhere. Yet there are still companies like American Hartford Gold that value freedom of speech and honest discourse, and are sponsoring shows like ours. With inflation on the rise, investing in gold is another option to diversify your assets. American Hartford Gold is a patriotic, family-owned company that not only sells precious metals right to your front door, they can help you deposit gold into a retirement account, like an IRA or a 401k. They've got an A-plus rating with the Better Business Bureau, and right now they have a promotion where they will give you up to $1,500 of free silver on your first order. You can just call 855-862-3377. That's 855-862-3377. Or you can text AMERICAN to 65532. Thank you, American Hartford Gold, for sponsoring American Thought Leaders. Dr. Robert Malone, such a pleasure to have you back on American Thought Leaders. Thank you, Jan. It's always my pleasure. I look forward to this interview and, and to many future ones. You just had a podcast with Joe Rogan, uh, which I understand is probably one of the, probably the most popular podcast uh, in the world right now, perhaps. This is what some of the metrics I've been seeing suggest. Um, it's curious because the, I think the thing that took it to that level is not necessarily your lane, right? It's this idea of mass formation. And I want to talk a little bit about that. Before we go there, you're also being attacked by all sorts of actors all over the place. So I want to give you the opportunity to tell me a little bit more about where you come from, what your work has been. Uh, I want to make sure that people are very clear on, uh, on who I'm interviewing here. So uh, I have some good news uh, that's along these lines. We've now opened the uh, two clinical trials sponsored by the Defense Threat Reduction Agency uh, with uh, Lidos acting as the sponsor, this is technical pharmaceutical language, for the treatment of uh, COVID disease with high-dose famotidine and silicoxib. So this is uh, technology, these are findings in terms of repurposed drugs that go back to the first phone call that I got from the CAA officer in Wuhan on January 4th. This is what my primary thrust has been in terms of research ever since, is identifying repurposed drugs and getting them into the clinic and developing highly innovative uh, clinical trials and trial designs around those. So these two trials that are just launched now and I believe uh, it may be that we're having our first patients in today. We had a long teleconference yesterday about it. 
with the team. These are incredibly innovative trials. They have a whole brand new patient-centered outcomes research tool for capturing data so that it, people, patients aren't responding to a predefined checklist of symptoms. It's, the software is designed so the patient drives the symptoms that are captured and characterized and then tracked through their course of their illness. So it doesn't have predefined biases about what people will experience with COVID disease. It has the Fluidus system, which is a cutting edge technology, basically a, a MRI-based spirometry of the lung. So this is high-resolution magnetic resonance imaging that is going to be tracking the effects of the disease and the drug interventions on blood flow in the lung, oxygenation in the lung, the arterial side, the venous side. The trials include um, administering influenza vaccine at the end of the treatment and at discharge from hospital so that we can track the effects on, of the treatment and of the disease on immune responses. It includes a full suite of omics being done by Emory. These are, they're not just trials of these drugs. These are gonna profoundly change our understanding of this disease and really are bringing to the fore whole new innovative approach to clinical research that is patient-based rather than based on pre-assumptions pre from a pharmaceutical sponsor. And it has the advantage that it is using repurposed agents, famotidine and celecoxib, that your audience will know of as Pepsid and Celebrex. One is over the counter and the other is uh, by prescription, but has been around for a long time and is well understood. So the point being, remember my primary focus, my primary core competency these days is not just discovery research and the stuff that I did back when I was running an academic lab. It's running these large teams and helping them structure large clinical trials and also the regulatory affairs component. So currently I serve as the president of the International Alliance of Physicians and, and Medical Scientists. That's over 16,000 physicians and scientists from all over the world. You can find that on globalcovidsummit.org. I serve as the chief science officer and regulatory officer for the Unity Project. You can find that at unityprojectonline.com. That's an organization that's focused on uh, trying to uh, resist the mandates, particularly the mandates for children. It is focused on trying to keep the children from being subjected to mandatory vaccination. And maybe you're reacting to, we haven't spoken before, historically over the lifetime of my career, I've won well over $8 billion in federal grants and contracts. I've managed multiple large study sections for federal contracts for the NIH, NIAID typically, or DMID, having to do with biodefense and vaccines. I'm often the study section chairperson. This is not a trivial task, trust me. Um, uh, and uh, there aren't very many people that have my breadth of experience all the way through federal contracting. Um, I actually have quite a bit of experience in federal contracting uh, as a consequence of having won and managed this large amount of capital over decades now. Uh, so they typically have me in as a study section chair 
for the large study sections that are giving out contracts in the 80 to $150 million range for biodefense vaccines uh, related products. Um, uh, there's you know, many aspects to what I do. I guess it wasn't previously recognized by many that I have graduated from Harvard Medical School in a fellowship that involved global clinical research. I've been brought back to speak to students, including this last year's class, as one of their exemplars. I completed two fellowships after I completed my MD, uh, that, uh, both at UC Davis. I've done many things, uh, and, and uh, these days, truly, I'm one of the few, this is not bragging, it's just, you know, I've worked hard to get to this place in my career where I have not only this 30 years of experience and deep experience in bench research, over 15 issued patents, 10 of which at least are directly relevant to genetic vaccines, RNA, DNA, and viruses, nine of which were filed on March of um, uh, <laughs> 1988, I guess it was, 88 or 89, a full decade before uh, the Carrico and Weissman work. Uh, Carrico cites me in her first mRNA paper, delivery paper, in the acknowledgments and in the references. I had actually um, spoken to her, coached her a little bit, and invited her to a key conference that I'd set up in Annapolis back in the day. This is mid-90s when she first started doing this. So that she could speak to other experts in the field and learn from them. Uh, so I've been in this a long time and yeah, there's all this yellow journalism and uh, they attempt to demean me or uh, um, perform various forms of character assassination. These are often done by journal, junior journalists. Uh, often the pieces are poorly written. The Atlantic article is uh, uh, regular journalists, when I talk to them, uh, find it as kind of a case study of, of what not to write and uh, of an example of, of what comes out of a less well-trained journalistic uh, pen. And, and um, it's that I, I had expected to have this type of attack. I've seen it happen with others. I saw it happen when I was a young scientist with Peter Duisberg, where he got canceled. Bobby Kennedy, in his book, makes the case that Peter Duisberg's intentional canceling by Tony Fauci because of his comments about HIV disease and the origin of AIDS may be one of the first examples of cancel culture. Peter Duisberg is one of the great virologists of the 20th century. I mean, one of the lovely things about Ken the Kennedy book is it so clearly demonstrates that what we're experiencing here with the media manipulation, propaganda, censorship, etc., was really piloted with the HIV outbreak. We're seeing kind of a third or fourth generation version of strategies that were developed then. So in terms of, I hope that that speaks to this question of, of you know, in, amplifying what my, and, and expanding an understanding of, of my CV. And the viewers, you know, I, I always say, um, it's more important to me to help people to get access to the data and learn to think for themselves and make their own opinion. 
I don't want to tell people what to think. I want to help them think and give them the tools to do it. So your viewers can easily do a search on Google Scholar, just Google Scholar, and my name, R.W. Malone, M.D., on Google Scholar, and you'll pop the full spectrum of my publications, the patents, um, at least the domestic U.S. patents, my scholar ranking, all the citations I've had on the various documents, etc. And you make your own opinion about whether or not I invented these technologies and the role that I've played in my industry. Well, I mean, they're all available there for now, right? <laughs> I mean, you've, you've had some commentary about, you know, Google search and the concept of mass formation. And I know that, uh, you know, the sort of origin, the modern originator of this discussion has, has asked that the term psychosis be stricken for very good reason. So I'm, I'm just going to use mass formation here. But so you're, are you concerned that there may be that kind of censorship potentially in the future? So you're referencing that over the last weekend on New Year's Eve, the Rogan show came out in which I spoke about mass formation, a topic I've spoken out on multiple other podcasts and there's been media out there and et cetera for quite a long time. And I'm just a student of Matthias Desmet. I've made this very clear, Dr. Matthias Desmet, University of Ghent, um, in Belgium. I've learned from him everything I know about mass formation. So I spoke about it in a simple way that seems to have connected with people and, and it became one of the top trending search terms uh, on Google over the weekend. And what was fascinating is people that are on my Getter account started tracking as Google by comparing DuckDuckGo search results and Google search results and, and screenshotting the differences, they're able to demonstrate Google actively manipulating the search results in real time over the weekend to downgrade the links that would pop when people would search mass formation because I was coming at the top of the stack initially on Google. And Google then stopped the ability of users to search mass formation and manually went in and changed the ranking results so that uh, obscure videos that had been uh, posted by people that were attacking, assuming that I was the originator of the theory and the logic, which was not true, they attacked me personally for what I had said, not realizing that it's actually Matthias Desmet that developed all of this theory, and I was just reciting what I've learned from him. And Google put uh, YouTube clips that had prior had only like 10 hits at the top of the search stack as the most uh, frequent responses when people would search and pushed me way down in the stack so you couldn't find it unless you searched on DuckDuckGo. So it was a fascinating example in, of, of, that actually validated in real time Matthias Desmet's theories. I was on a podcast with Matthias yesterday and we had a good laugh that over the last week we have had enough data generated validating his theories of mass formation to keep him and his graduate students going for the next 20 years. I mean, it, it has been amazing watching it and what it, what it demonstrates is the lack of self-awareness by big tech that, that what they are caught up in the mass formation themselves or they are intentionally manipulating it. 
When we reached out to Google, a Google spokesperson disputed Dr. Malone's characterization of the search results and said they were, quote, automatically generated. As you said, you've been able to kind of explain his theory in a very simple way. So, I mean, very briefly, could you kind of explain what that is? So, uh, thanks for asking. And I had the benefit in this interaction with Peter McCullough and myself on the Tommy Kerrigan podcast yesterday to, uh, I was asked by Tommy to recite my understanding of mass formation and then get Matthias's feedback in coaching in real time, confirming the things that I got right, correcting me on the things that I got wrong. So hopefully I'll get it right this time. So mass formation is, does not actually originate with Matthias Desmet. It is a very active source of research in um, psychology that goes back decades. There's multiple books that have been written about it. The, the storyline for how this came about, this, this spark of awareness by Matthias Desmet, which he does get credit for, he is, runs like this. He's an unusual academic because he not only has his PhD and his academic appointment in psychology, but he also has a master's in statistics. And so he tells the story, the genesis of his insight is that he was looking at the projections from the Imperial College of London, which by the way are the basis for the CDC asserting the incidence of uh, Omicron in the current population in the United States, which appears to be overestimated. The Imperial College has all the way through this, they're a modeling shop, and they have overestimated the risks associated with this virus again and again and again, yet they're still doing it. In the early days, they made projections that were catastrophic about the number of deaths that were going to occur in different countries, etc. And Matthias started looking at these data as a statistician and comparing the actual incidence data and mortality in his country and then in different countries in Europe because those data were available. Um, Worldometer, your, your audience can look on Worldometer or the Johns Hopkins site, etc., to find it for themselves. So he began doing this as a statistician and comparing them to the projections that were the basis for these very harsh measures that had been implemented, like the lockdowns. And just recall the Great Barrington Declaration team had said the lockdowns were counterproductive and shouldn't be done. We would have more deaths consequent to the lockdown strategy than we would have if we didn't. Okay? So Matthias was looking at these data, comparing the differential, and it became very clear to him that public policy was not aligning with the actual reality. And this caused him a lot of uh, cognitive dissonance of, you know, why is this? What's going on? Because at the time already there was a lot of the conspiracy theory circulating. And it was only after a couple of months that he had the insight, the brainstorm, that what he was seeing was mass formation in progress, something he had taught on. And the fact that it took him a couple of months to realize it demonstrated to him that he was also suffering from the mass formation, okay? Because he hadn't, he hadn't been able to make the connection in his own mind. So what are the conditions for mass formation as, as laid out by Matthias? 
there is a sense of social isolation that pervades society. People are disconnected. Now, he cites the figure from various studies, and I recommend to your audience that they go back and search Matthias Desmet's videos on YouTube, and you'll find this stuff where he cites the reference source. He cites that there are solid data that something like 60% of the population of the United States believes that it has, they have no friend, which is profound. We, are, we had become profoundly decoupled from each other as a society. And another key condition, so one of the conditions is this decoupling from each other and from the classic social institutions, churches, Rotarian groups, any of these things, sports events, teams. Um, we've become decoupled, isolated. This is before the virus. Had developed a sense of free-floating anxiety. This is one of the key features. A sense of anger, aggression, free-floating, undirected anger and aggression well, and, and just to be clear, free-floating for the benefit of everyone just means that you're not sure why. Right? Yeah, Matthias uses the example that in standard anxiety, we have a mental image of the thing that is causing the anxiety. That can be actually very adaptive. If we have a mental image of a tiger, we're anxious because the tiger might eat us. A mountain lion, if you're living out west. I mean, mountain lions eat people out west. It happens. Or a bear, okay? If we have that mental image of what the threat is, then the anxiety isn't free-floating. It's directed against a specific thing, and it's adaptive. You don't want to put yourself in a position where the mountain lion or the bear is going to eat you. That clearly. Um, so it's this decoupling where you have anxiety, you're disassociated from your social structure, you're an, you're an island as an individual. You have this anxiety, and you have anger about having that anxiety. You have a sense that things aren't right, and yet you don't know why. These conditions all existed prior to the outbreak in droves. And Matthias cites multiple examples demonstrating it. The frequency of individuals that felt that their job had any meaning is historically in the cellar, etc., etc. We had a society that was profoundly ill in a fundamental way across the world, Western uh, industrialized societies. And then an event happens. And it is an event, any event, it can be the rise of a populist leader that is espousing hatred towards an ethnic group, um, an enemy, an other. It can be an event like a major economic disruption, which is fundamentally what happened uh, after the armistice in, in Germany prior to World War II. Uh, the Russian Revolution is another major disruptive event. Uh, there have been many, many historically. Actually, the planes hitting the Twin Towers, a case can be made that triggered a mass formation in the United States. Historically, it may be that Socrates, in drinking the hemlock, was the victim of mass formation in his society. A case can be made, actually, the story of Jesus Christ captured in the Bible 
is a story of mass formation and the consequences of mass formation. So this has been with us forever. And what happens that, that apparently, I'm not an expert in this, but those that are, have noticed a trend of mass formation becoming more and more powerful, more and more universal, deeper and deeper during the 20th century as we have had the rise of coordinated global media and uh, dense populations, urban populations, etc. So they make the case that there's a historic trend to mass formation over time, particularly in the 20th century and now into the 21st century. What happens is there's an event, could be multi, multiple different types of, of sources of this event. And in the modern embodiment, you, you, he, Matthias says it straight out, mass media, through its actions, drive the focus of the population, in our case globally, in the current situation, drive the focus of the population to a single point through its obsessive messaging. So they, Matthias is explicitly identifying the role of mass media in triggering mass formation in modern society. And he asserts that what happens as media does its thing to sell clicks or newspapers or whatever it is, you know, I use the term fear porn all the time. It's very good for the media to incite fear. Works for them as a business model. We've seen it again and again. So the media drives this focus and a fraction of the population, and it's typically about 30% is all, of the population becomes obsessively focused on a single point exactly akin to what would happen during the process of hypnosis. With hypnosis, you can focus the human mind on a single topic and exclude all other signals in the environment so that a surgeon can do a surgery on a patient who perhaps is allergic to an anesthetic agent that they might otherwise use. This is used clinically. This isn't just, you know, stuff that uh, carnival tricksters use. Hypnosis is a real thing, and it is used clinically. And it involves focusing the human mind on a single point to the extent that it will exclude all other data and signals. And that is what happens, what triggers mass formation. It typically happens when it gets triggered in about 30% of the population. And again and again and again, a leader will either incite that triggering or will gain control of it so that they are perceived as um, the solution for the anguish and pain, psychological pain, that the people had been experiencing. Okay, so a leader is identified by the mass, once they've formed, as offering the solution. Furthermore, by forming this mass from these people that had previously been totally disassociated in society, decoupled, had no friends, suddenly they have all found a common bond. So they have relief from their psychological anxiety and stress this free-floating anxiety is relieved. They now have the metaphorical tiger or bear 
or mountain lion that their brains can focus on. Whereas previously, they, their brains had all this internal cognitive dissonance, but they didn't know what to focus on. Now suddenly they have a thing that they can focus on. And when that happens and you have a leader emerge that is accepted as the savior for that mass that is formed around this hypnotic event, that leader can do no harm. That mass, as we saw with Stalin, will first consume those that are perceived or identified by the leader as the other, the threat. And we see this in the modern context, in the current context, by the anti-vaxxers or the non-vaccinated. Those are identified as the threat outside of the mass. Whether or not the data support that, it is irrelevant. They are perceived as the other. And during mass formation historically, in human populations, People will eliminate that threat. The mass will act to eliminate the threat. And deplatforming is a, actually a very benign version of that response. It typically results, you know, in the case of Stalin, you, as one example, or Hitler, of course, is the notable example that we are all very attuned to, um, with the concentration camps, Stalin, it was the gulags. What happens with mass formation, in, in, in uh, the French Revolution, another great example, it's the guillotine, right? The, uh, the group that was identified as causing the pain for the French people were the aristocrats, and so the guillotine. Here's the thing, One, as the mass formation deepens, the, those that are part of that group will eliminate by any means those that are identified as their enemies, as the cause of uh, you know, the inciting event that they're focused on, responsible for that event, responsible for um, the spread of SARS-CoV-2 in the population. You know, all this messaging we're hearing from the White House that it's the unvaccinated that are the cause. Okay, what it, that is, is deepening the mass formation of this group that has become totally hypnotized. It's classic. It's so classic, you wonder, you know, is there anybody home? Are they, are they any self-awareness of what they're doing in terms of manipulating the population through this kind of crazy messaging? It is such classic mass formation behavior. But what will happen is that they will burn through, one way or another, um, that enemy, and then they will turn on themselves. It happens again and again and again. So you ended up in the case of Stalinist Russia, where Joseph Stalin killed, literally, over 50% of his Communist Party membership through the gulags, you know, as documented by Solzhenitsyn and others. Okay? So, and here's the amazing thing. Those that are in the mass, that have formed this mass, they will sacrifice anything. They will sacrifice their wealth. They will sacrifice their freedom because they are psychologically hypnotized and caught up in that mass. And they will do anything. And if the leader tells them that they're now, since they burned out all of their opponents, that they're actually the ones that are responsible for whatever the latest uh, transgression is, 
they will willingly go to be killed. They will willingly accept, for instance, in the case of the mass formation in Russia, they will own that in fact they transgressed in some ideologic way with Communist Party dogma and will agree that yes, they should be put in the gulags. The classic example of this is the Jacobins after the French Revolution. As you'll recall, the French Revolution burned through the aristocracy and then the guillotine started going at the people that were part of the revolution, right? That was the Jacobins saying, well, you're not sufficiently pure, off to the guillotine for you, right? So this is classic mass formation or mass formation hypnosis. And uh, we are sh demonstrating all the signs and symptoms. And that's, that was what was fascinating over what happened, about what happened over the last week and the deplatforming of myself and many, many of my colleagues. If you speak against the dominant narrative that is accepted by those that have formed this mass, about 30% of the population, you will be eliminated. You will be eliminated from society, from the dialogue. You may lose your life. So Peter McCullough and I are, are having this chat with Matthias and on a podcast, and, and I asked Matthias, okay, doctor, what's the prescription? What's the therapy here? He said that he and his colleagues have been talking about this a lot because now he's out in this, this inference, this hypothesis is widely circulating in his academic domain, and they're all debating it. He said that the emerging consensus is that we're already so deep in it, it's here. Um, it's not the wolf is at the door, the wolf is in the house. We are suffering from mass formation on a global scale reinforced by global media. That's what all this coordinated propaganda, censorship, and everything has done. We're there. And he said the only thing yet to be determined is how deep the mass formation goes, how intimately people get wrapped up around this logic. Calling it's a stretch to call it logic. It is completely resistant to facts. Facts are irrelevant. If facts are inconsistent with the, the, the storyline that the mass has formed around, those facts will be rejected. This is another fundamental thing about human psychology, is it can be clearly demonstrated that there are data which come in through your senses and what happens is your brain processes those data and compares them. This is, you know, fundamental signals coming through your eyes or your ears or touch. Those data aren't directly perceived. They are compared against a model cognitively in humans. And those data which are inconsistent with that model will be rejected. We are only able to perceive that which is consistent with our own intellectual model of reality. It can be demonstrated again and again. This is a core part of hypnosis. Um, so these people that are caught up in the mass formation, it doesn't matter how much data you throw at them. They will reject it. And we see this in real time. This is what deplatforming is all about. If you, the, the, this is the, the logic of mass formation is intrinsically integrated into the Trusted News Initiative. The Trusted News Initiative defines any 
interpretation of current events, risk profiles, um, adverse events of vaccines, etc., which is inconsistent with the party line being put out by the World Health Organization or national health authorities, is not allowed to be discussed. The only permitted discussion is has to be consistent with the storyline being put out by these global bureaucratic public health leaders. Nothing else is permitted. This is intrinsically anti-science. It doesn't matter because those people are the identified leaders of the mass that have formed. Any other information will be rejected and if you spread any other information, it is determined that that will lead to vaccine hesitancy and anything, whether it's true or not, anything which leads to vaccine hesitancy because the mass is formed around the idea that the vaccines are magically going to be able to relieve them of this problem, which is infection by SARS-CoV-2 and the threat that it represents. And so anything that is perceived as leading to individuals making a, a reasoned choice that they do not want to accept this vaccine personally is deemed to be mis- or disinformation by its very nature because it would alter their behavior and they wouldn't take vaccine. If you think this through, what that means is that the information that a given individual, you, your audience members, that they would require in order to have informed consent, true informed consent, it is not allowed. They cannot have access to that information that might lead them to make any decision other than the decision that the mass wishes them to make. Because the mass has formed around the concept in this situation that the vaccines are a, you know, a perfect solution to their problem, their cognitive angst, which is the, the existential threat of death from this virus. That's why they're so resistant to the data demonstrating that that is truly merely, a, that is an incorrect existential threat. The true threat, that's, that's why it's profound that the government is not allowing the true data on risk to be distributed. The government, and, and it's reinforced by Pfizer, Scott Gottlieb, has. there's a great clip of Scott Gottlieb in former FDA director, right? Um, uh, now a member of the Pfizer board of directors, speaking to the press on video, stating that there's been over 600 deaths in the pediatric cohort in the United States since the beginning of the outbreak from COVID. And therefore there's a major threat to children associated with COVID. He never mentions the fact that there was an, a deep academic study that documented that virtually every one of those deaths was in a child which had major pre-existing comorbidities. They didn't die of COVID, they died with COVID. But Pfizer, with its representative board member, former FDA Commissioner Stott Gottlieb, neglects to mention any of that. Only the scare. Your child is at risk for dying from this, 600 other children in the United States over the last two years have so died. Therefore, your child must be jabbed. So we have the mass has formed around this idea that the vaccines are a perfect solution. 
reinforced by government officials, we all know who, um, reinforced by this surrogate marketing, which by the way is illegal. I mean, I've been trained in medical affairs. You are not allowed to market a product that is not yet licensed. There is no licensed vaccine available in the United States. It's all emergency use authorization. It doesn't matter. Okay, so getting back to mass formation, what will happen is that anybody who speaks anything, and by the way, they've defined if you are against mandates, you are an anti-vaxxer. That's now in Webster's. The definition of the term anti-vaxxer includes anybody who is opposed to mandated administration of an experimental medical product, which is exactly contrary to the um, Nuremberg trial outcomes and the Helsinki Accord, which say that you absolutely can't do that. You cannot mandate that somebody accept an experimental medical product without full informed consent and in willing acceptance of the risk. Those criteria are abundantly not being met. We have governments asserting that it's okay to go in and vaccinate children without their parents' consent. We have policy positions that if your child goes to school, you are by definition consenting that your child will be vaccinated at that school. That the whole thing for me and people ask, why are you speaking out, Robert? It is, it is profoundly shocking, antithetical to everything I've ever been taught in terms of bioethics. And one of the things as a clinical researcher is that you're subjected to bioethics training rigorously, repeatedly. It is one of the criteria. If you want to be a principal investigator at a clinical research trial, it was a core part of the Harvard program that I went to. Bioethics training. Bioethics, I've had it again and again and again. And we have completely disregarded. Aaron Cariardi was drummed out that the lead bioethicist for the University of California, Irvine, as I recall, was drummed out of the university because he wouldn't take the jab because it was being mandated, an illegal mandate in the, of the jab, of the vaccine, by the University of California. And they booted him out of the University of California, their lead bioethicist, who was taking a firm stand that was consistent with modern bioethics. Uh, that it goes on and on. But what, you know, those that are allowing themselves to be wrapped up in this uh, need to be aware that if this continues, they're at risk also. Now, here's the last little hook that Matthias shared that is um, so. It, it just kind of locks in what I have to do, and I have to keep doing it, so does Peter and everybody else. What Matthias spoke to us of is that the mass formation has occurred. It is in progress. It is global. It's too late to stop it. The media is caught up in it. The governments are caught up in it. The WHO is caught up in it. Uh, big media, tech, and big pharma are all reinforcing it. Well, and many people maybe even aren't aware, as yeah, based that's on the everything you're saying, that, 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 that they are caught up in something. Yeah, precisely. It's not, it doesn't, and it's not, we don't have to resort to Klaus Schwab or Bill Gates or whatever, you know, counter mass formation you want to make, because that also happens. Um, 
you know, for those that are in the out group, will develop their own countermass formation. Uh, it is a fundamental human behavior. So what Matthias said to Peter and I is, you must continue to speak out in a nonviolent, calm way, because the only thing that will keep the mass formation from going deeper and society going even more crazy is the dissidents that speak. The dissidents that speak the truth. But he said, you have to be really careful because if you show any signs of violence or aggression, you will get stomped. It, not his words. You will be attacked. So those of us, you know, I didn't ask for this. Um, I spoke out based on my morality and my training. I spoke of the truth that I was able to observe because of my knowledge of the technology and regulatory affairs and clinical research, etc. I felt compelled by my own ethics that I needed to speak about what I was observing. The comments been made as I've been deplatformed now by Twitter and LinkedIn is that if I'm not, if whether I'm right or wrong, with my background and experience, and I may be one of the very few that has this depth of understanding of the technology that doesn't have a direct financial conflict of interest, okay? If I'm not allowed to speak about my concerns, whether they're right or wrong, who is? Who is a valid person to participate in the dialogue? We could say that you know, Joe Schmo down the street who's a stockbroker or a plumber or whatever shouldn't be allowed to have unorthodox opinions about vaccination or Alex Jones to take a stocking horse. Um, uh, but if not me, who? So that's the situation we're in is I started speaking out. Peter started speaking out about early treatments, the alternative to the vaccine. Both of us have been shut down, attacked, um, had, had purposeful attacks trying to remove our medical license, our freedom to practice our art. Um, attacked, you know, vile attacks in the press, continuous. Um, and by Matthias's diagnosis, we have no choice but to carry on. The only thing that can be done to keep the mass formation from going even deeper, from society basically becoming even more decoupled from reality, is for those that are able to serve as dissidents, to speak truth in a nonviolent way to the population and hope that in doing so, it mitigates the risk of the mass formation going even deeper than it already has. Peter and I and, and Pierre Corey and all of the others in Ryan Cole that are walking this walk. And Mauro Rango, head of Apocrity in Italy, etc. It goes on and on and on all over the globe. Remember the 16,000 physicians and medical scientists that have joined us in this, that have uh, all signed off on the declaration that's on the globalcovidsummit.com site or .org site. We must continue to speak truth to what is essentially power, despite the fact 
that we eventually may be forced to drink the hemlock, not to be histrionic, but as the metaphor to the death of Socrates, we must continue because we have an ethical obligation as the leaders to try to reduce the depth of the mass formation that has taken over the world. So many thoughts I have right now, okay? One is, this is a, could, could be a dangerous time in our history that we're entering, that's what you're describing. At the same time, there is this realization, as I mentioned earlier, that many people are simply not cognizant of, of their headspace, and that there's, there's a kind of a, I don't know, there's, there's, there's a compassionate element to this. It can help many of us that are not in this, you know, think about others in a much more peaceful way, perhaps. And the third thing is, um, you know, I learned many years ago um, that I'm not susceptible to being hypnotized. And apparently there's a small portion of the population that's like that. Um, because I watched it happen, you know, being done in public, in a situation where I knew it was real. Because I always thought it was, uh, you know, basically parlor, parlor tricks, I think, as you said. And, and no, so it, it ha it's, it's a very real thing. It's used clinically. Yet there's some portion of the population that just simply, it just doesn't work on. Our team reached out to Dr. Scott Gottlieb, but we did not immediately receive a response. Coming up next on American Thought Leaders. This will move through the entire population, whether you're wearing masks or not, unless you live on top of a mountain and nobody talks to you ever. In part two of my interview with Dr. Robert Malone, we discuss how the COVID vaccines are faring against Omicron and how the concept of herd immunity has been grossly misunderstood. Herd immunity is not a binary thing. And why he's deeply concerned about vaccine mandates for children. The government has no data upon which to base any mandate requiring these vaccines which are mismatched for Omicron. And the price children have paid during this pandemic. It's not just the jabs, it's the masks. There are measurable deterioration in very young children of a 20-point IQ drop. Clear evidence of developmental delays. 